awesome uh, songs and uh, so excited. A uh, couple things I uh, want to do at the beginning here. I wonder if we could. This is our last day to collect shoeboxes, right? Yep. Okay. Could we? Uh, I brought one in just to remind myself, but I think we ought to do this while we're still kind of in the, in the attitude of worship and and prayer and thinking of those around the world that don't know Jesus and that have very little. I wonder if all the, I know that not all of them are out there. We've already stored some somewhere. Is that right? Are all the shoe boxes on that table there? Okay. I just wonder if kids, would you mind uh, a few of you go out and get the shoe boxes and bring them up here so we can pray for them? Yeah, we might need some more kids to go out there. I think some are gone. Oh, did, are they gone right now? Oh, there's some there. Yeah, I think there's other ones that are not there, but yeah. The ones that aren't there, we don't get to pray for, won't work. No, that's not, that's not true. We're just going to pray for these as representative. And uh, thanks, guys. And then I was wondering, do we have any, um, do we have any children uh, who would be brave enough to come here and say a prayer? that would lead us in a prayer for that young people who get these boxes will know that Jesus loves them and that he, you will? Oh, that's awesome. What's your name? Mia? All right. Mia's going to pray for these boxes. And uh, I'll just tell you, uh, I've been, I think I told you early on, I've been to Africa and I've watched them uh, get these boxes. I've actually seen big cargo containers, you know, the things you put on ships, open up and they were stacked with these shoes box all the way to the ceiling, wall to wall, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet deep, however those things, big those things are. And I mean, it changes kids' lives. So Mia, will you pray for these? And all right, we'll just pray with you. And if you want to stretch your hand towards these boxes, it'd be great. Um, Lord, thank you um, for this day and for all that you do for us. Um, I pray for the children that will be getting these boxes, that they would just um, enjoy their gifts, and um, I pray that you would just help them know that you love them, um, and bless them. Um, and just be with them, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. thank you, awesome job. Wonderful, yeah. Great. Great, great, great. And um, so they're, uh, yeah, they go to kids in war-torn war places that have nothing, that have seen their own relatives shot and their houses bombed and raided. And so it's just uh, an amazing ministry. So yours will do that. So uh, thanks for praying and thanks for, for being a part of this. I know we brought ours last week and I think some disappeared. Somebody showed up um, at our church the other day with 45 boxes. And my wife asked, oh, are these from a company? Do you work with a group of people or from another church? And he said, no, this is just what my family does. So this one guy and his kids put together 45 boxes. So um, that's kind of their way of, of increasing Christmas, you know, instead of just putting it on yourselves, of saying, how can we give it away? Um, all right, and so Maddie, are you, will you come? Okay, Maddie uh, came to me during our little break time there where we greet, and she said, I think, the, well, she knows the Lord gave her kind of a message for today uh, and just kind of been speaking to her. And I, uh, she said, would you read it? Do you think it's okay? I thought it was awesome. So Maddie's going to come and share um, 
this with us. So I'm going to, it'd be better if the mic's in the stand, won't it? So you can hold or can you hold and redo or what do you want to do? <laughs> Here, maybe you can hold it. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. I'm going to sit down because I'm lazy. Okay. So I guess to start off, when Jackie started talking, I kind of started like crying because um, <laughs> it actually really, really spoke to me just through this whole message that um, God sent my way. So I'm just going to read this to you guys. Um, this. <clears throat> I always thought that the love of God was something that would suddenly floodlight me with angels singing in the background, but that has not been my experience. I sat in church every Sunday listening to Connie pray in spiritual gibberish and seeing people lift their hands or bend their knee in reverence to a God who hadn't made a peep to me, or at least I thought he'd been silent anyway. <sighs> I wrote a letter to my parents recently explaining all the reasons that I thought God couldn't possibly love me. I included everything that I thought proved that he couldn't love me or anyone, and I was sure that I had just dismantled God's love once and for all. But when my parents sat me down to talk about it, my argument fell apart after one discovery. <laughs> God doesn't speak to everyone in the same way. And for me, it's not through singing angels or praying in tongues. And I realized that I had been hearing God's love through others all along. Here's a few examples of this. So my mom um, told me that without God's love, our family <laughs> is really hard, and I totally get that. And I realized while she was talking to me, I kind of stopped listening <laughs> because there's a sign on our wall that I made her a couple years ago, I think, and it says, I don't say I love you out of habit or to make conversation. I say it to remind you that you are the best thing that ever happened to me. And it's always meant a lot to me. But while she was talking, it just like in that moment, like that was my floodlight and angels singing. Like it was just, I don't know, it was just insane. Like suddenly realizing like two years ago that was going to be behind her while she was telling me about God's love that I was doubting. Um, the second example is my youth pastor's wife, Allie. Um, for the past couple of weeks, we write in these little journals, <clears throat> and she tells us about, she tells us to write, like, prayer requests. Hi, hey, baby. Yeah. And things that we're struggling with so that she can pray for us. And I've been putting in that, like, I've just been seriously doubting God's love for me. I've been you know, struggling with feeling that and believing that. And she said that she also has never heard directly from God. It's always been through other people, and she sees love through other people. And at the time, I was like, well, that's ridiculous. Like, why would he do that? It just seems like you're looking for things that aren't actually there. But, I mean, again, like, as mom was talking to me, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, that is so unbelievably absolutely true. And then the last one is Richard Stradley. <laughs> and <laughs> um, for a while, every week that I come to church, I get a big hug and a kiss. And 
um, he tells me how his week has been going, and he just <laughs> has really been, it's really been nice to get here every Sunday and see that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> this morning when I started writing this, I heard God speaking to me again when How He Loves by Kim Walker came on, and again when my mom gave me the rest of her white chocolate peppermint mocha that I wanted but hadn't asked for. And even just in passing, I heard Troy say something along the lines of Jesus' love is better than anything. And I haven't been very close to God for a while now, and it's because I thought I couldn't hear him, but like the human sinner I am, I really just wasn't listening. Being in tune with God is a challenge, and choosing to do the right thing every time is even more so. But resolving to get in the habit of seeing his love in everything becomes as easy as breathing if you let it. God says, seek and ye shall find, and never has that verse applied to me more. It goes without saying that if you aren't actively seeking something, it will take longer to find it. But my mind has been changed, because if I can find so much love in the past few days, then there's no way that God could possibly not love me. Wow. Thank you for sharing, Maddie, that revelation of God's love. And it's so important. I, I love that part when she said, God loves, reveals his love to all people, maybe in different ways. And, uh, you know, we can start comparing ourselves and with others. And why don't I hear like that? And it begins to think we are disqualified or less than or not as important. And so what a revelation, Maddie. Wow. And I can tell you're so strong. You just picked... We're going to put her here. I couldn't have done that. Wow, what a big sister. Wow, that's awesome. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, we're going to do part two of Luke 15 and uh, just talk about the, the, what's been commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, but should be mostly called the parable of the prodigal God or the, and the parable of the lost two sons. But before we do that, I just was reminded, I want to pray for people. I know some people have already kind of on the road for Thanksgiving or maybe for the holidays. And we have some people who will be kind of going to the warm Arizona area and uh, we boo you. Um, no, we don't. We're so happy that you get to go there and, uh, and warm up. Uh, and so I just want to pray for mercies and travels. And another thing, um, in all the years of my pastoring, sometimes the holidays are very stressful for a lot of families because uh, Part of the family that maybe you have a strained relationship with, it can even be your own children or your own parents or your own uh, aunts and uncles and something went south and, and it's never been, uh, never really felt that love flow or there's tension that the holidays are, people sometimes dread them because those people, you invite them to dinner or you go to their house for dinner or you're at someplace else where all these people are gathered and there's some strain and stress and and uh, pain associated with that. And so I'm just going to pray for everybody to have grace uh, in that area. And I'm hoping your family doesn't face that. But um, most families have some place where kind of a broken uh, breach in love exists and uh, pain pours through that crack. And so may God give you grace and mercy to love, even if you're not loved back, to bless, even if you're not blessed by that person, to forgive even if they don't forgive you. And um, I just want to pray for that covering for these holidays. So, Lord, 
um, first of all, I come on behalf of the wonderful people in this church, Lord, that will be, some will be traveling many miles away for not just the holidays, but for the winter. Others may just uh, be staying at home, but people coming to their house or, or just going down the road a mile. I, I don't know the situations and families, but Lord, um, may these holidays be blessed with your uh, travel mercies, with your angels round about everybody that's traveling. Keep them safe. Keep them healthy. Lord, watch over them. May um, there just be a blessed holiday season with, with safety and, and, and health and, and blessing. And now, Lord, I, I also lift up the pain that may come as a result of gathering with people that we may not choose to gather with the rest of the year, but they're related to us, and uh, we don't know how to relate to them anymore. There's, as I said, pain or... or um, water that has flooded into that relationship that has uh, extinguished the flame of love. And so, Lord, I pray for grace for everyone here and even those that are already on the road that they would be able to love people that are hard to love. They would love when they don't receive love back. They would bless when they receive cursing back. And they would forgive even if they haven't been forgiven. And that, Lord, they would be just filled with your mercy and grace to be like you, Lord. Uh, and may we all say, Jesus, like you said on the cross, even the pain, the things done to us, the things uh, we suffer from the hands of others, and some of the most painful is our own relatives. Uh, Lord, when you hung on the cross and you said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Lord, most of the pain we experience is because we don't really understand what we're doing to others. And Lord, forgive us for where we've offended and hurt others. And may there even be healing in that area. May we be bold this holiday season if there's somebody we need to apologize to, somebody to say, I'm sorry, I did that to you in the past. And that, Lord, um, and we've done it out of ignorance. We've done it out of self-preservation or we thought it was the right thing to do or we thought uh, we had a right to do that. I have rights. But, Lord, you showed us on the cross we have no rights. Lord, what we have is to offer your love and to trust you to our lives into your hands. And so, Lord, uh, help that flow this holiday season. Bring healing and peace and love and grace. We love you, Jesus. And may we be amazed when we return after the holidays, even in January, of just have a testimony of how you allowed us to be bigger than we actually are, to be more Jesus than we thought capable. So we thank you in your name. God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, thank you. Anybody, just a quick raise of hand, anybody have pain in their family? Oh, yeah, okay, we got a few, okay. All right, so let's, uh, let's pray that Jesus, you'll just be the breath of Jesus coming in those situations. I uh, hope your week's been good, uh, and we, I, we won't be here next week, and remember, I think you're gathering on next Sunday to kind of have your traditional Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving testimonies. What, is there a name for it, Lance? Psalms of thanks. That's right. Sounds awesome. Our, we have some family flying in from Seattle, and they uh, are were, they're skiers, and somehow their, their lift tickets that they use outside of Seattle work in Big Sky. And so they, uh, this is our daughter and her husband, and so they rented a place up there, and we're going to go join them. So we'll be with you in spirit next Sunday, but up in Big Sky. So uh, that's in Montana, by the way, if you didn't know that. Okay. Uh, Probably you knew that. Anyway, Big Sky is the largest skier in the United States now because they bought up all these other things around there. So, um, And is it right that I hear Kanye's moving his tennis shoe factory here? Is that right? That's true. Cause I love that because that's, that's in the business of souls. 
right, 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 right. And, and it's Pentecostal because there's tongues involved, right? With shoes, yeah, shoes. I can't, I can't think of another one, I'm sorry. So anyway, that's cool. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the third part or the third parable in Luke 15. I think of all the chapters in the Bible, Luke 15 has really been put together by the Lord and uh, through Jesus speaking these parables together to really talk to us about how God loves us. As Maddie shared, as Jackie shared, it's kind of been the theme that we understand where the wonderment that God loves us. The wonder of all of who he is, what he's created, and that he loves us. And so, Lord, anoint us to understand your word today. So let's read through this parable of the lost sons again. And you know what? I, I found out I can kind of turn off these lights so we can see a little better maybe the words. And uh, does that help a little bit? Okay. So we'll try this. And I'm sorry the type's so little, but I decided to get it on there. All right. The parable of the lost sons. In some of your translations, it would say the parable of the prodigal son. But it's really, uh, so you, I hope you know in all of our Bibles, when we run across a, a title, uh, it's not in the original Greek. It's not in the original writings that we accumulated to be the canon of Scripture. We have put those in there. There are no chapters. There are no verses. And in Greek, get this one, there are no punctuations. We don't even know where the sentences end, except by context. And so some of this we've put together, uh, obviously, to try to make sense. And we even put chapter and verses, so I can tell you, turn to Luke 15. But in the original writings, it, Luke just wrote it all in Greek, and it would go uh, all the way through, and you wouldn't have a chapter 15. So we have chopped things up, hopefully, to help us be more mani manage it better, to refer one to another. Like, did you read this scripture in Luke 15? verse 7 or something like that. And so when we've put titles in, like the title of the prodigal son, that is what some translating team thought was appropriate years ago. But I think as scholars have looked at this and we found more accurate manuscripts in the last uh, 30, 40 years than they ever had available when they, most of the time, uh, we had the King James Version for years. And until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some other manuscripts that are more accurate, we believe in more trustworthy to the original writings, we have learned to interpret and translate the Bible better. And one thing we've seen is that somebody in the King James Version who decided in the 1500s or 1600s to title this, the, or I don't know when that title came, the, the parable of the prodigal son, really probably focused on the one lost son. And what does the word prodigal mean? Again, we, what? Wasteful, wasteful, yeah, uh, just throw it away, uh, value it not, just be wasteful. So we can be prodigal with our time. We can say, man, I got to get stuff today, but I think I'm going to play video games, all right? And so we can be, uh, that may not seem like a waste to you, but uh, if you're a parent wanting your kid to clean the bedroom, it is a waste of time. So uh, so we can be all wasteful and um, uh, just spend everything in a wrong way and, and not steward things well. So instead of that, this real, the focus of these three parables, the parable of lost sheep, parable of lost coin, and the parable of the lost sons really are about God's love to us. 
And when you title it the parable of the prodigal son, you're focusing on the son, and it's really not about that. It's the parable of two lost sons and how the father loves them both. So another title for this that I even think is better, I took this out of the NIV, would be the parable of the prodigal God, the wasteful God. And I'll explain how God is wasteful and extravagant here in a little bit when we talk about this. All right, verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was, and so spent everything, that's where they thought, well, let's title this prodigal son, wasteful, spending everything, not stewarding well. So uh, that would be, uh, that spent everything would be uh, a definition of prodigal. There was, a, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, you know what? I forgot to bring the second part of that up. Michael, can you go back in my slides a little bit, and we'll read part two of that. Um, yeah, keep going back. Oh, there it is. Okay. Meanwhile, go one slide farther back. Let me see. Uh, so, yeah, okay, but when he was still long, one more back. Okay, yeah, went to his father. Okay, let's stop there for a minute before we go to the next one. I just want you to know that verse 18 uh, and 19 are a rehearsal by the young son, by this younger son. Uh, he's saying, okay, what am I going to say? How this is, life is really a bummer for me. I am starving to death. The pigs are eating better than me. And to a Jewish person, that would be the ultimate insult because pigs are unclean. And to think that my state is worse than the pigs I'm feeding, they're eating better than I am. He decides to go home. He says it comes to his senses. But I want you to know those last two, three lines there is he kind of puts on his three by five card. I know what I'm going to say. Father, I, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he said, I don't even want to be reinstated as a son. I, I will be satisfied and I know I will have my stomach full and I'll have some clothes on if I just am one of the guys like you hire to work the ranch. Okay. All right. So let's go on. Michael, we'll go to the next slide down. Okay. So, but, okay. So he's coming back. He's got his little rehearsed speech. And now verse 20, but while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So that verse is a key to why maybe this parable should be called the parable of the prodigal God. 
the God who gives son, it gives love to his son even when he doesn't deserve it. And we'll talk more about that. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. So he starts through his, re- his speech. I've against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice his speech is cut off, his little rehearsal. He doesn't even get to the part. Just can I come and be one of your hired hands back on the ranch? But he doesn't get that far because the father cuts him off. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And last week we mentioned scripturally to be dead doesn't mean to be physically dead all the time. Most of the time when it's used in scripture, it means to be broken in relationship. And maybe that's what will happen to you over Thanksgiving or Christmas. Maybe a relationship that's been dead will be reestablished. You said this was dead, but now it's alive. This was lost means to be out of relationship and out of connection, but now it's found. And so it's not that this father didn't know where his son was. He may have known all along, especially a father who seems to have had this kind of estate with this kind of inheritance to give to his sons and these kind of connections in his community would have probably had a spy somewhere in this country to where his, this area where his son went, spent everything on prostitutes and wild living and probably knew his son was suffering, but that he was still lost to the father because the relationship was broken. Okay, let's go on. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and while he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And he says, your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now there's a contrast there. Kill the fattened calf, the father says, for the, for the young wasteful son that spent everything. And the elder son saying, you didn't even give me a goat. And in that culture, to kill a fattened calf would have been a much, would only been done for the most important celebrations. If you're just going to have a normal celebration, you might kill the goat and serve it. But man, when you kill the fattened calf, this is like the ultimate reason to celebrate. So the older son is saying, you, this fattened calf you were saving for maybe the biggest celebration or the biggest guest we would ever have, or if uh, the king came through here, or if high royalty came, but you're giving it to your son. You didn't. You never even gave me a goat, and I've been faithful to you. We never even had a party for me, even the even on the lowest scale. All right. Now he says, "Disobeyed you, or you never gave me even a young goat, so I celebrated my friends." But when this son of yours, and we talked about that, he doesn't say this brother of mine, but this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you, all, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Now remember, he's saying this to some people sit at a table with him. 
what we would call the tax collectors, it says at the beginning, the sinners, the riffraff, the ones that are rejected by the holy people and the church of that day. And he's sitting at a table and the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaders of the community and of the church are looking at him and grumbling, why are you eating with these sinners? And so when he says in verse 31, you are always miss me and everything I have is yours, he's saying even to these guys, the church that existed of that time, to the Jewish hierarchy and the religious people of that day, hey, I love you. I will give you all of my love. I will take care of you just like I've always promised. But you have no room in your heart for these young brothers who are sitting with me at this table who you look as wasteful and, and degenerate and as trash and not worthy of God's love or of entrance into the church. So he's telling them, hey, you may see me loving these. It doesn't mean I don't love you. All right, verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother's of, brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so uh, let's go through that uh, a little better. And let me, first of all, let's bring up this picture. I showed you quickly last week of, of Rembrandt, the painter of light, um, my wife was doing research this week and found out, you know, he painted so many of the big uh, incidences or, or uh, what would you call it, of, uh, of, of biblical history. He painted so many, thank you, of the, of the events of biblical history, major rocks in the Bible. Rembrandt painted those. He was called the painter of light because he always has a place where the light is descending. But he died a pauper, and he died an atheist, from what we can find. Is that right? Died an atheist. So that means you can, uh, you can know all about the Bible. You can even paint some of the pictures and do a great job of representing God's love and God's presence, but still not have a personal relationship with him. And so it should be an admonition and a warning to all of us. We can know the Bible front and back. But do we have a relationship with God? I heard it put this way by John Wimber, who I really watched his teachings and the vineyard churches that started years ago. And he said, many people he meets, they treat the Bible like the menu. Said, first of all, let's look at the Bible like a menu. The Bible tells us what's available in God and what we can order, so to speak. What we can have from God. What can be delivered and served to us in the love of God. But he said, I've met many Christians, instead of reading the Bible as a menu of what's available in a relationship and what we can have, and Jesus said, if you eat of me, if drink of me, kind of that way of, of relationship with God. But instead of doing that, they eat the menu. How many of us come in, we know the word of God backwards and forwards, and how many of us would go to a restaurant, and maybe some of you will on Sunday after church, and just, they serve you the menu, and then you just start eating the menu. <laughs> Uh, and in many ways, that's how some of us treat the Bible. We read it, we understand it, we know it, but we never ask God or walk into that relationship that the Bible tells us is available. It, it, don't eat the menu. Let the menu lead you in what's available to God. All right, so Rembrandt may have treated the Bible and all these biblical scenes he painted as kind of a menu. So first of all, I just want to review this, and I turned off the lights because it was hard to see last week. So the elder son is on the right. 
you can, it may be hard to see, but right, uh, he's got his hands sticking out of the robe, and there's a staff, a, a cane kind of thing standing down, going kind of between his legs there. And that Rembrandt, as he painted this, uh, and as Henry Nouwen and others have studied this painting, they're pretty sure Rembrandt was trying to say the stiffness, the orthodoxy, the stiffed back, lack of love, dutiful son is standing there and he even makes him look more stiff and less emotionally flexible and less engaged by giving him a staff to keep him straight as an arrow because he saw himself as that. Father, I have served you all my life. I've been as straight as an arrow in serving you. I haven't deviated. I haven't broken the rules of the family. I haven't done any of that. But uh, you now give this fattened calf to this son of yours that, that has broken all the rules. So that staff kind of stands for the rules. And you can see him there looking in. He's to the right. Um, other servants there, maybe servants in the house. Other, maybe some of them look like they're kind of dressed really well. It's hard to see them in this picture, but one's got a big kind of turban on. Maybe he was a royalty. Maybe he was high government official in the village where this father's ranch or farm was. And so now we see the father and we can tell the father and the son are related because they both have the red robes because you all as a family had a robe color of in, especially in the prominent families that signified you belong to this family. We have a similar thing in Scotland. Uh, how do you know you belong to a certain family in Scotland? By the plaid, the tartan you have and by the shield. And so you could tell a clan by the way their plaid was woven. Okay, where there's greens and blues or reds or yellows or whites. And so that's been a part of tribalism for years and years. So notice the son is kneeling down with his head buried in the father's chest. But he has no robe on. And we just read that the father gives an order, kill the fattened calf and bring a robe. Bring a ring and bring some sandals or shoes. Now, what Rembrandt, in reading that, he, uh, it's really hard to tell in this picture, but the son's kneeling down, and on one, the farthest left foot, which again, maybe you need, you should bring your binoculars from now on to church. Um, the farthest left foot, and you can look at this online, so the farthest left foot has no shoe on it at all. He's barefoot, and on the, the right foot, if you could look better, it's kind of a torn sole and a broken apart shoe, right? So only the people in the family who were actually part of the family, sons and daughters or those that were adopted or maybe now bought out of slavery and were free, only the highest level of the family were a lot, had shoes. Every and sandals. Everybody else was barefoot in that society. So if you were barefoot, people knew you were a hired hand or and that you didn't have land or cattle or resources and you were just a servant to others. So when the son comes home with looking like and dressed like a servant, the father says, quick, get the robe. I want this back on him. He is my son. He was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. Quick, get him some shoes because he really belongs in this family. He, he is part of the royalty here. And get him a ring. What did they do with the rings in those days? Does anybody know? 
Signet ring, right? And you may have heard that term, signet ring. It doesn't work like our flimsy little rings. They would be a ring with maybe the seal of the family on it, maybe uh, the monogram of the name. I'm not quite sure everything they had on a signet ring, but they would seal all documents by lighting a candle, dripping wax on either a corner of this document or folding it up and sealing it with that wax or an envelope. And then before the wax is completely solidified, they stick the ring in there to give the insignia that this is an official document from this family. This is not a forgery. This is the real thing. You can believe what's written in here is actually what I want to have happen because I wrote this letter and I've sealed it with my ring. And the only people that had signet rings were the father and who he chose to also work on his behalf and represent the family. And so he is saying by giving the son a signet ring, bringing that ring, that you now can do business for the family. Now just think about that. This son has just squandered, maybe in our economy, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or maybe 50,000. It's hard to imagine. I don't know if we could put it in today's dollars, but let me say assuredly, it was quite an inheritance because this is a, you can just get from the, the, from the parable and from all that's going on that this is a prominent family with means. And so your son or daughter have just squandered their inheritance. They come back and say, oh, now you can, you can go to the bank in my name. You can do withdrawals and deposits. You can go and you can sell cattle or you can sell the sheep. And you can use this signet ring to seal it so it's no, it's a real deal from me, and I approve of it, and I give you this ring to do it. Now, have you ever seen that God looks at us that way, that we may have squandered and sinned and wasteful, and then we come home to God, the Father, and he reinstates us immediately? He doesn't say, okay, you got to prove yourself for a few months. You have to, uh, or for a few years, or for the amount you've lost, you've got to earn it back. And then when you've kind of replaced that, I'll let you back in as my son or daughter. But the love of God here is so extravagant and seems so wasteful to trust this son who is not following Dave Ramsey and has not been uh, doing good financial stewardship with the resources of this family. God, when he brings us home and loves us, and when we ask for forgiveness and we receive it on the spot, there isn't a time of earning. There is a reinstatement as sons and daughters in full uh, authority and in fullness of what that means on the spot. He gives us a robe to identify us. The scriptures, I think Paul says in Colossians, we've been robed in Christ, clothed in Christ. We can now do business in the name of Jesus. We can now in the prayer room, in the prayer our prayer room and in our prayers, do sealing of God's will in the name of Jesus. We can use that name. And that the shoes we have now show part of what Paul might have been talking about in Ephesians with the armor of God and put on the, the, the shoes or sandals of, do you remember what it was? The armor of God, breastplate of faith, the gospel, covered in the gospel, the shoes or sandals 
boots that are, we stand firm in the gospel of Christ, the good news. And so those things are shown here. Another thing before we leave this picture, notice the hands that the father has on the back of the son, the youngest son who's come home. It might be hard to tell from there, but if you go see this painting, and I told you last week, it's, it's as tall as, I believe it's as tall as the ceiling is, and probably as wide as the screen is. And um, you can see very clearly in doing it that one of the hands is feminine and one of the hands is masculine. Can you tell which one's feminine? This one over here, the father's right hand on our left, right? Can you see how the fingers are slender and uh, the muscles are not as prominent? And notice the, the father's left hand, our right, the, it's more of a man's hand with the thick fingers and the strong grip kind of thing. And so Rembrandt, even if he died an atheist, maybe he was a believer when he, when he painted this, but he understood that God has this gentle nurturing side to him, that part that wants us to come and know him as a nurturer and as a lover of us, kind of in the same way we see an image of God from our moms that they're there in the middle of the night when we're crying, that they nurse us, they feed us, they care for us, they changed our diapers. I know men, we live in a different society now, and men are doing 50% of that. Some single dad's got to do it all. But in the tradition of this time, it was the moms who took care of their children and raised them. And so they knew that gentle hand, that hand was never lifted to discipline them or uh, to punish them. It was a hand of nurture and love. And then Rembrandt says, but also God is a father. Not only does he mother us and love us in a gentle and kind and nurturing way, but he has a strong hand to help guide us and discipline us when we need it and, and guide us in the way and, and help us grow up strong and lay that strong hand of his upon us to convict us when we're wrong and to hopefully bring us to our knees to repent. And so Rembrandt understood these two uh, aspects of the father. And uh, that's why I believe God's plan for the family is, uh, contrary to what we see going on in society today, is a marriage is between a man and a woman and that they bring up a child because then a child in that kind of marriage where there are both genders represented sees a completer picture of God than one that may be raised in by a single parent. And if they're raised by a single parent, we have single parents in this church, then we have to, as the church, represent that other part of God. Collectively, they become our family. If there's a single dad here, then I ask that the women here, I, oh, I, I ask, what authority do I have to ask? I just say, maybe we need to realize that God wants you to love on those kids, women and, and older girls in this, that they don't get that feminine aspect or their mom has fled and is gone, that they, those need that feminine touch. And if there's single moms here raising kids, then men, I would suggest that maybe we need to come alongside those single moms, that these kids would know that hand of a, of a man upon their lives and that what it is, uh, that aspect of God's love and strength that he gives us in direction. So Rembrandt was an amazing guy. He understood a lot out of scripture, why he died an atheist or why historians say that. How do we know what was his last breath? How does anybody know what his, was really deep in his heart? But maybe he expressed that. But nobody knows. Maybe someday we'll get to heaven and there will be Rembrandt still painting. And, and uh, who knows? Uh, but uh, at least at this point in his life, he understood things about God and about this parable that very few have and uh, represented it so well. And we need the artist to unpack 
and help the theologian. The theologian can preach and teach. In the original Greek, it says this. In the original Hebrew, it says this. And in the culture, it meant this. But we need the musician and the artist to then say, but what does that aspect of God look like represented in something bigger than words, something bigger than we can express in just uh, in, in just speech or preaching? How can we look at something? How can a, a song be written like we sang the reckless love of God that speaks of all three of these parables, but in such a way we grasp and our emotions are touched and our hearts are touched greater than uh, or alongside of the preached word of God. All right, so let me just, uh, yes, sir. Oh, God, go. Sounds good. Thank you. Sorry about that. All right. Thank you for doing that. Where, uh, where's the collection place here? Oh, you got to go to Powell. Okay. All right. All I, all I know is that don't tie them on top of the car today because uh, they won't make it. <laughs> Awesome. Lord, bless these packages. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe, maybe Kanye will donate some boxes next year. Yeah. Yeah, a few boxes, right? Okay. All right. So let me just say a few more things about this. Um, so uh, in, re in review of the... Oh, you just got it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Kanye, the shoe company, the boxes. Okay, all right. I already made enough fun of him today. All right. Now, boy, but it seems like he's had a real conversion. I hear his new Christian album is pretty amazing. I don't know anything about him. All right, younger. Um, so, just in, in quickly, let's just, uh, you can see this. Let me just say a couple things about the youngest son, but spend the last few minutes talking a little bit more about the oldest son. Um, he was wayward, rebellious. He insults, insults the father. I don't know if you know what it would be like today and what this would be equal to in your family. But in those days, to ask your father for his inheritance before he dies is the worst insult you could give a father. It would be like spitting on your dad and saying, I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want to, to be a part of your family anymore. I just want what you have that's due me by the laws of our lands, by the laws of the Jews, by the laws of the Leviticus, I want to get my inheritance and I want to get out of here. That is the greatest insult. It would have totally embarrassed the family in the entire community. If that happened in Cody, everybody in Cody would know that this kid asked for everything that was due him in the inheritance and ran away with it and he insulted and embarrassed this family community-wide. This is a huge, huge cultural faux pas, a huge problem to do, a huge, uh, the very wrongest thing to do to your family. And so when we see the father run to him, put the robe, the ring, and the sandals on him, it's bigger than we can really imagine. Think about what is the worst thing your kids, I'm speaking to the parents in here, the worst things your kids could do to you to insult you, demean you, or show that they don't really love you they just want clothes in their back. They want uh, uh, iPhone, and they want Bluetooth speakers or whatever. What's the worst thing they could do to you? And think then, would you as readily welcome them back? All right. So now he turns around. He sees himself feeding the pods to the pigs, and he says it comes to his senses, and he said, I've sinned. 
Father, I'm going to go back, and he rehearses this. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I want to say quickly, right here, and this is very important, I've seen people repent on only one level. They either do the horizontal level. They either go, let's say I hurt Justin's feelings, and I went to Justin. Yeah, we're calling you to role play here. Just sit there. I went to Justin. I went to Justin and said, Justin, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings last week. I'm sorry I did that to you. Okay? So that's a horizontal forgiveness and say, I'm not going to do that again. So repentance really means turning around. I'm going to develop a better relationship with him. Turn away from a, a mean relationship to a good relationship. The vertical part of repentance is, Father, I've sinned against you by hurting one of your sons. I shouldn't have said that. That was selfish of me. That was reactionary of me. I felt hurt by Justin, so I hurt him back. I've got to go to the Father and do vertical repentance as well as horizontal. I've done this myself, and in the years where I've seen relationships not healed, people not made whole, much of the source, I'm not saying every time, is they get only one of the directions of repentance down. They only do one. They either tell God, I'm sorry, but they never go to the people they've offended and really ask for forgiveness, or do they go to the people they offended because they want this to run smooth here because I won't get what I deserve, or they won't ask me to their house anymore, or uh, I won't be in relationship with them, and I need a job. They do the uh, horizontal repentance, but they don't go to God, realizing they hurt God because they hurt people. Every time we hurt people, we hurt God. And so this is really a big part of this parable, is that Jesus is showing us that this young son got it right. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I know I've offended Father God because I offended you, my earthly God. So I'm asking God to forgive me, and now I'm asking you to forgive me and just take me back as a hired hand. I don't think I deserve to be a son again. So repentance goes uh, both directions. And it says he came to his senses when he was feeding the pigs. That's conviction. We call that conviction. So if you get conviction, act on it, as this son did. And um, he went... Uh, he did both the conviction and the circumstances. So two things can lead us to repentance. Circumstances, this isn't going well, or, um, or conviction, that we get in our hearts something is wrong. All right, so we already talked about the robe and the ring, and now let's talk about the elder son. He's the good boy. He's the obedient one. He conforms to expected behaviors, represented by Rembrandt in that stiff pole he's holding on to. He represents the Pharisees, the scribes, the unchurched, the ones that are looking through the door. He represents us. He also insults the Father, also, by not saying, I wish, you know, I can't wait around till you die. Just give me what's mine, and I'm out of here because I don't want a relationship with you. He also insults the Father by never going into the party. When in this parable, when it says he doesn't go in, he's angry, it means he is also lost because he's out of relationship with the dad. He doesn't want to celebrate and love what the dad loves. He doesn't want to enter into that relationship of celebration with his dad. He wants what he deserves. I deserve now the party. I've been the good guy. I've served you. Why are you doing this? This, this, this son of yours, no longer do I call him my brother, squandered so many things. So this redefines, this is scandalous to anybody who would have heard this parable, those at the table and those at the door in those days because he redefines sin. 
You can sin by being good, not just by being rebellious. Do you see? This eldest son is sinning too against the father. And remember, the father in this parable represents God. You can serve God just to get from him. You can serve God not to have a relationship with him, but just to uh, be self-righteous, just to be better than other people, just to follow the rules and knowing that someday it will pay off. You can serve God. You can be good just to get the goods. And you can be good because you say it makes me deserve blessings from God instead of wanting to have a relationship with God. This is why people get thrown off track who've gone to church their whole life, maybe never missed a service, memorized tons of scriptures, uh, been Sunday school teachers, do all those things, and then some, a tragedy hits them. Somebody dies, they get sick, something doesn't go right, and then they go, but I've served you all my life, God. I can understand if these bad things happen to those sinners out there, but it shouldn't happen to me. I've served you all my life. And then we know we've served God and we've been good to, because now we've earned God's blessings. And we leave grace. Grace means everything we have is not earned. We don't see ourselves as sinners. So uh, the eldest son is looking out on his father's, is, sorry, losing out on his father's love because of his goodness, his self-righteousness, and his pride. Now let's talk about the father. His love is recklessly extravagant. That's why I think this parable, and I agree with Tim Keller, who wrote about this, we could call this the parable of the prodigal God. Reckless love. He loves both sons. It's a great reversal. Luke was great, well, was prominent in teaching reversals, and this is a big one. The older son should, should get the reward, is left outside. The younger son, who should not get any reward, is led into the party. And so this is a reversal of the normal religious thinking. The wayward, wasteful son is the one who gets the party surrounded by the love of God and the father's love. It's mind-blowing. So both sons are loved and lost. Both sons wanted the father, what the father had, not a relationship with him. And one rebelled to get the goods. That's the younger son. The other practiced being a good boy to get the goods. Neither son wanted to bring delight to his father but like their father, or be like their father, or have an intimate relationship with their father. So I want to say we're both these sons, I believe, in our lives. Sometimes at the same time. Everyone in here, you were born, and you, and you were given a disposition by the Lord, giftings by the Lord, and you've grown up in households that formed us in certain ways, and you may have a predisposition, a propensity to be the younger son. How many people, or you may have a propensity to be the older son, to be the good, the good one who always follows and does the rules, but you're doing it to get, not to please the father. Or you could be a young son who runs away and spends everything and really just wants the goods. So how many in here see yourself, and, and this is being vulnerable, but we all have this, so there's nothing to hide. How many people see you're naturally more like the younger son? Uh, we have a few of us hippies in this room. Okay. All right. Yeah. We used to, okay. We got some of us. More like the younger son. I want it. I want to get it. I'm not, I'm not a rule follower. I'm not a conformist. And that thing. I want you to know God loves you. And God is, is enthralled with you. And that's why you have a robe, a ring, and sandals on today. 
How many of us look more than like we're the eldest son more of the time? Okay, yeah, that's me. Okay, two, I always like, to, I love the rules. Matter of fact, Carolyn can tell you today, we're driving down the road and I'm, I'm doing the speed limit and I go, there's a policeman! And I make sure both hands are on the wheel like this. And I, my, back, my back is straight and I'm like, I just like scared to death. You know, I want, I want to follow the law. So uh, that, that is, that's my, I'm the elder son. And you know what that, and God loves me. He's put a robe and a ring and, and, uh, and accepted me and, and put shoes on me. But I have a tendency to stand aloof and look at those that are getting blessed and go, why isn't that happening to me? Why I do comparisons. I get, can get jealous. I can get compare, I can, uh, you know, get uh, envious, those things. And so as elder sons, we've got to fight that. As younger sons, you've got other battles to fight. But let's just review these three parables, and then Jackie's going to come back and lead us again in the reckless love of God. The lost sheep. It's a sheep that wandered over the hill. He wasn't purposely running away. He just got lost in the focus of his life of eating, staying alive, and after caring for himself or others, and just got out of sight of the Father's love. And so Jesus says, how many of you know the shepherd will leave the 99? Run over the hill, find that lost sheep, put him on his shoulder, doesn't beat him, discipline him, tie him with a rope, drag him home, puts him on his shoulder, brings him in. Some of us have experienced that. There are tons of lost sheep today in Cody and the surrounding area. Jesus said, it isn't the harvest that's the problem, it's the workers of the harvest. If God's a searching God, then so should we be. I, we love to say it this way up in Billings, found people find people. If you've been found, then you go out to find others. The lost coin, it just fell away. I forgot to mention last week that this dowry, many of the women came into marriage. The dowry was, member of their kind of social security system, kind of the, if their husband died off or couldn't supply, they could take care of the kids. A lot of them wore it around their head. Have you ever seen those pictures of women with a gold, uh, uh, what would you call it, headband, but they got coins hanging off? That was usually many times how a woman displayed her dowry and showed she was pretty wealthy. She'd go to a party and say, instead of putting on her finest clothes and say, I'm going to put on my dowry, boy, and they know I'm taken care of. You know, if, if, my, if my husband dies or, or I get kicked out in the streets, uh, I've got this dowry. So, but this one coin fell away, not on purpose. It just got lost. So for whatever reason, if you or I have become like that coin on the floor of life, stepped on, shuffled about, and abused, we need to know, as this song says that Jackie will lead us in, he lights up every shadow looking for us. God has been shedding his light on you and me and seeking us ever since we were born. So we, uh, we are now back in his hands. And there's other people out here in Cody that are lost coins. They feel like they just got forgotten. They just, it was carelessness on somebody's part or their part. And does God love them? And he's searching for them. And then, of course, the lost sons. Either way, young, wasteful, rebellious, or dutiful, good. He wants you in his party. He wants us here. So he runs to you, invites you in, gives you his robe and ring and shoes. God doesn't want us left outside the party. He wants us to enter the great banquet room with everyone else. So, I'm lost. Does anybody care? Am I of any value to God? Yes, he lights a lamp, and he sweeps every crack and every floor looking for us. And I've spent it all, wasted it. God runs to me. 
And like the eldest son, do we know God doesn't love me because I'm good. He simply loves me and he wants me. Just because you're good doesn't mean he loves you any more than you are when you were the, the wasteful son. So God does not reckon our sins against us. Paul writes it this way in Romans. He doesn't reckon our sins against us. Reckoning is a sailor's term that you looked at something on the horizon and you kept the boat headed in that direction. Whether it was an island or whether it was the sun setting, you reckoned and set your course that way. All right? But God does not reckon our sins against us. He doesn't set his course towards us determined by our sins. He is reckonless. That is why it's called the reckless love of God. And I'm so excited about the guys that wrote this song, whoever it was, guys and gals, that they understood these parables unbelievably. And they called it the reckless love of God because he doesn't reckon our sins against us. We're all invited to the party. Lord Jesus, thank you for these three, this three-part parable where you showed us the love of the Father. And Lord, no matter where we've been, we are here today. And if we still feel we're not worthy of the ring, of the robe, or the shoes, God, we ask your forgiveness and realize we'll never be worthy. It's not because we're good, or it's not even how bad we've been that we deserve to be even loved more. You just want us and love us. And by our faith in you, our trust in you, our repentance to you, that we come to you. And Lord, I pray that we'd get this repentance right, that not only would we be fast to vertically repent, but also horizontally, to say, Father, we sinned against you, but then also to those we've sinned against here on earth. And so, Jesus, as we sing about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, how it chases me down, fights till I am found, leaves the 99, that we couldn't earn it, we don't deserve it, and you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God.